If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Listeners, we have a really great conversation coming up today with Spencer Pollock. Well, and we're going to be talking about cybersecurity, what you need to know about it, how not to be vulnerable, the hidden costs, literally everything you need to know right up front about cybersecurity. Before we talk about that, though, I just have to reflect. It is March. And many boards are starting to scratch their heads and say, should we be having some type of a board retreat in the spring or the early summer? And if your board is thinking that and you're looking for a facilitator, I would encourage you to go over to SuccessfulNonprofits.com. I do a lot of board retreat facilitation. I've got some out-of-the-box packages as well as some customized packages. So regardless of what your board needs this time around, whether it's transition planning, building board expectations, whatever it might be, we can probably help you out. So again, head over to SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And now it is my distinct pleasure to introduce Spencer Pollock to you. He and I had an incredible conversation last week, and frankly, I wish I just could have taped that, because that would have been the entire podcast episode, and we'd already be done. Spencer is an attorney who graduated from the University of Baltimore, and he specializes, specializes in cyber crime and cyber law. He is the person that you want in your corner and on your side, not just if something happens, but before something potentially even happens. And I know some people might already be thinking, you know, I don't know if this episode really applies to me. We're not a big organization. We're not anybody's target. So I just want to share a quick story with you. In 2017, there was a small nonprofit in Indiana that served people who are cancer patients. And one day they came into the office and there was a message on their computer screens that said, cancer sucks and we suck more. 
and their system had been hacked, and the hackers had come in and encrypted all of their client information and also took a copy of all of their client information for themselves and held that client information ransom. The organization, and again, this is public, it was in the newspapers, the organization, which was not a large organization, ended up having to pay the hackers $43,000 to get their information back and to get the promise that that information would never be released somewhere in the dark web. Now, listeners, I just have to say that that should strike fear in the hearts of every nonprofit because cyber crime is far more common than we think it is. And one of the reasons for that is we and our colleagues, we don't really talk about it if it happens to our organization. Oftentimes we're kind of ashamed and we're like, oh, let's just not tell anybody. So this is far, far more common than we think it is. Hey, Spencer, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I need to bring that uh, introduction about me to my family and friends so they know I'm actually an okay person at times. So I appreciate it. Well, I, I love it. And of course, in the outro, we're also going to talk about your podcast, The Cyber Law Revolution, which a lot of people should be tuning into as well. Now, in our conversation last week, we had a little bit of a conversation about the difference between data breaches and cyber scams. And I think since we're going to be focusing on data breaches today, it might be helpful for us to kind of define both of those so our listeners know what it is that we're having a conversation about. It's a great question. And it's something I do run into a lot, Dolph. I kind of put it into two buckets. You know, you get the data breach, but you also with the cyber incident or say the cyber scam. So when we're talking about a cyber incident, all data breaches are going to start with a cyber incident, but not all cyber incidents become data breaches. And this is a really important distinction because that's really where you're going to get into the legal areas. So when I'm talking about a cyber incident, you know, there's thousands of cyber attacks a day and attempts are cyber attacks. So if you think about the scams that we all have to deal with, maybe you get a call from the Social Security Administration saying to call us back or to refinance your mortgage. And you call them back, you make the mistake of maybe giving your Social Security a bank account number, something like that. That's a scam right? Maybe a hacker somehow emails a nonprofit and says, we need a thousand gift cards. And maybe it looks like a legitimate partner that the nonprofit works with. And they said, okay, well, we'll send you a thousand Walmart gift cards. That's a cyber scam. So the big difference is, if you really want to think about it, it's, is this impacting individual information rather than things that either are public or have no individual information? So if I give my social security number myself, it doesn't impact my law firm. Obviously, it impacts me. But just like if I send a gift card from a nonprofit out, it's not going to impact donor lists, employee information, maybe bank account numbers. It's just isolated to that. So when you start thinking about the data breach, that's where we really start getting into the almost organizational-wise impact, right? Talking about the information that is going to be touched or acquired, you know, from what you're saying, the ransomware, somebody have control of your systems and then basically download all of your information, all your donor lists, um, the information contained, social security numbers, bank account, health information, anything of that nature, where it basically is going to cause harm to your clients, your donors, your employees. So that's how I kind of try to differentiate the two when I'm talking to clients. And you make a really good example about the 2017 breach. And 
you know, $43,000, while it seemed like a lot, is actually very much on the low end of these data breaches because average data breach is about 3.86 million and nonprofits are not immune to it, unfortunately. And one of the things just to drive this point home is, as you said, it's not just client data. It could be our employees' data. We have enough data on all of our employees to be able to steal any of their identities. So our employees' data, our donor data, really any data set that we've got. But I know some listeners might be thinking, well, we're okay because we don't have an on-site server. All of our data is in the cloud. Should they feel better about that? No. When I talk about this, people are like, well, you're just trying to scare us. And honestly, I'm not. Unfortunately, cyber impacts everybody. You know, when we're talking about the information, past and current employees, clients, and for nonprofits, donors, just because they don't work for you anymore doesn't mean you're not liable for them if you've got their information. You know, maybe you've got it from 10 years ago. Same with donor lists. In terms of the anonymous donors from the past, do you really want their name getting out even though they haven't donated for maybe a year or two? Um, In terms of the cloud-based versus local, we've become such a decentralized society, right? You know, before it was very much centralized, i.e. everything is in the back office. We control the port of uh, access to basically one thing, right? Because we're going to do all payroll here. We're going to take all data, which was very secure, right? Because you have to imagine if I've got a house with one door, I can really make that door secure. If I got a house with 50 doors, well, I'm a lot more wealthy than I am right now, but I'm also a lot more vulnerable. So now organizations, nonprofits included, have farmed information data out, right? So while they don't have it on their servers, they've enlisted, say, uh, an IT firm, a website hosting to take it. And then they think, well, I'm not liable for these vendors who have my information, right? They're hosting it. They're liable. Well, no, no. Under the law, you're liable, right? But beyond the legal, so the law says you're going to be liable if there's a data breach. You have to have contractual obligations with them. But let's look beyond that right? Let's just say there wasn't a legal obligation. What are you going to say to your donors if you're using Spencer's, I don't know, IT service and I get hacked, right? The donor list goes out and all your donors' names are now out and they were anonymous. You're going to go to your donors and say, no, not my fault. It was Spencer. Spencer did it. They don't know who Spencer is. They've never worked with Spencer. They didn't donate to Spencer. They didn't trust Spencer. They only care that they gave it to you right? So it is a false sense of security. And I see this with a lot of nonprofits, unfortunately. And nonprofits, two sense of false sense of security. One, that they have outsourced it, so they're not responsible. And then two, that they're doing good, so they're not going to get hit. Unfortunately, hackers don't care. They love low-hanging fruit. Nonprofits are low-hanging fruit because of how vulnerable they are and the information that can be used against them to leverage them. So hold on. So let's talk about that. Why are so many nonprofits vulnerable fruit? What are they, what are they doing or what's causing that? So if you think about it, a lot of nonprofits, they're there to help society. The whole fundamentals of a, of a nonprofit is to profit others rather than themselves. I'm sure that's not the exact definition, but they're for the public good. So I truly believe there's a belief within nonprofits that since they are not for-profit, hackers won't see them as a juicy target. So then what happens after that is they're not putting a lot of resources to cybersecurity infrastructure, to policies, to being compliant, you know, for that belief, but also the financial constraints. Cyber is very interesting to me. 
for many reasons. One is it doesn't discriminate and it applies to all of us. It's not just healthcare. It's not just finance. They don't care where you live. They don't care about your political affiliations. They care about you have information. Information becomes currency. Currency becomes money. So they look at nonprofits as this is easy. You know, they don't have these firewalls. They don't have the policies. They haven't trained their employees. You know, they've got their guard down. So we're going to be able to launch less sophisticated attacks, take over their systems, put them over a barrel, and get as much money as we can from them. Um, and it's a sad state of the world, but unfortunately, it's the adversary we're facing is very sophisticated and very much uh, dedicated to their craft. And so when you're saying the hackers think to themselves, we're going to get as much money as we can, how much money are we talking? So an average data breach costs about $3.86 million globally. In America, it's $8.1 million. Basically, if you look at the breakdown of costs, and I know probably some people are like, well, that's really high. Okay, well, let's go to the lower end. Can a nonprofit organization afford $500,000 in costs if their data breach? Because let me tell you, the data breach I've worked on, legal costs, tens of thousands, forensics, 100,000, public relations, think about your brand. Think about sending these notifications out to people that are impacted and how much it costs per person to send a notification, credit monitoring. So it's not just one little cost, right? It all adds up. So when I talk to organizations, they're like, well, I'm not the 3.86 million. I'm not the 8.1 million. Great, I don't want you to be. But you're gonna be in the six figures, i.e. the hundreds of thousand dollars. If you don't have the proper procedures, protocols, policies in place, if you don't have the right insurance, you don't have the legal, the forensic expertise, you're looking to basically taking it on the chin when it comes to the financial. But once again, it's nonprofits, it's reputational to me. You know, the reputation of nonprofits, the ones I've advised, it's so important to me to get that message across. You know, your name and the trust that you have in a community is everything. And when you lose that by not taking cost-effective, easy measures to better protect yourself and the information, you can't turn around and tell your donors and employees, well, we, took, we did everything that we could within our means. So I've got to ask you, when you're working with nonprofits and they have a data breach, what do they need to be doing? How do they need to be handling it? I mean, so I look at it's like a two-track kind of process. Those who have insurance and those who don't have insurance. So those who don't have insurance. A lot of this needs to be done before a data breach happens, right? Because if you're doing it on the fly, you're going to make mistakes. Because when a data breach happens, it's not a usual, say, uh, car accident or, you know, maybe a construction defect, something like that, that you have a lot of time to prepare for. Or if, let's say it's a hurricane. You've got a couple weeks. This is a tornado and there's no alarm. And if you're not ready for it, if you don't have a plan, it exacerbates everything. So to give you kind of an example, uh, in terms of average costs, organizations, nonprofits included that have a data breach plan people in place that are accountable for it and test it save on average 1.2 million per data breach. So you can scale that up or down, you know, regardless of where you think you fall on the average scale. So before data breach, nonprofits really need to look at themselves and say, one, do we have internal legal? If we don't, we need to get external legal. You know, the other part is with forensics, you have to be careful. If you have your own cyber company externally that's already working for you, if you're going to try to use them after a data breach, you're running into legal complications. And there's a whole legal problem behind this, but it's basically you need external counsel to retain people on your behalf. So to start, 
nonprofits should one, look at what kind of information they're taking in. Do they have credit card numbers? Do they have social security numbers? At a bare minimum, we've got donor lists. So then they need to start developing these policies and procedures. It's incorporating legal and forensics together at that point. So then when a data breach happens, they know the first call that they need to make is to their attorney because the attorney is basically a coach at that point. So when I come in, I'm basically going to quarterback everything to start. I'm going to go retain Dolph Cyber Forensic Company on my client's behalf. Because at that point, everything we're doing is going to be protected under attorney work product. Granted, there are there's always exceptions. You know, I'm going to be bringing in the data mining company if it comes to that. Making sure the ransom is taken care of if we're going to go down that route. So it's getting counsel in immediately who then can get you to the right people. Because cyber is specialized with this. And if you just call a random person, whether it be forensics, whether it be law, it's not going to go as well as it should. Now, those who have insurance, call your carrier immediately. I mean, like immediately call your carrier because then they'll get you to an attorney like me or someone that has handled these things before and they'll run the same process as we just discussed. So then it's almost like if you call your carrier about something else and they essentially find an insurance defense firm. Yes. It's basically they have a list of preferred providers who they've vetted. You know, so we're on, I don't know, I think 10 different carrier panels where like if you have HSB insurance and something happened, you know, you'd call and HSB would call us and say, this is going on. You know, we need you to get involved. So they've vetted different attorneys. When it comes to cyber law and cybersecurity, you need people that are really focused on this because of how fast the ball is moving. This is not like other law. It's not like contract law that's been the same for 200 years. Literally changes every six months. You need forensic people who are keeping up with it because the hackers are moving faster than we keep up with. Insurance people the same way. You know, you want brokers who know what they're doing with cyber specifically. So it's barely that niche that you really need to incorporate that I emphasize in nonprofits to incorporate into their association. So we've talked a good little bit about cyber insurance. If I'm the executive director of a nonprofit or the CFO of a nonprofit, and I'm looking through different cyber insurance policies and options, what options are most important in that policy? So, I mean, the first thing you want to look for is, I tell everyone now, you want to make sure ransomware is covered, you know, extortion. Um, if that's not covered and you get hit with a ransomware attack, it doesn't matter how much money you've got for defense, for forensics, for credit monitoring, for business loss income. If they are not paying the ransom, you're paying the ransom. So extortion is a big one to me. Then it's the post-breach costs, the legal costs, the forensic costs, the notification, right? Make sure that those limits are high because, you know, in terms of how much things cost, the forensics cost the most in this. They really do because it's such a specialized thing. But you're talking $100,000, dollars $150,000, and So it adds up. So if you have a lower limit, then all of a sudden it goes from it being covered to now you're paying everything out of pocket, which you don't want. And, and so maybe I don't fully understand this. So what are these forensic specialists doing when they're coming in that warrants $100,000 in fees? So what makes forensics unique in this is that one, they're on, just like me, I'm on call 24-7, but so are they, all right? And the technical aspects of this get into the different coding, the different kind of behavior of bad actors. So they're very much specialists. They're not your IT company down the road, right? And they've handled these things. They've handled thousands of ransomware. 
they literally have playbooks about everybody, every different hacking organization that is known. So they're worth their money. It's a large price tag, but I can guarantee you involving someone like that versus your run-of-the-mill IT, you're going to be very happy that you did pay the money that was needed because if not, your systems are going to be completely decimated. The information is going to be leaked and it just trickles out from there. Makes sense. So make sure your insurance covers ransom. Make sure that your insurance covers all those post-breach activities. What else should you be looking at to make sure your insurance covers? For nonprofits, reputational damage. Because once again, I feel like reputational damage is a very big thing. So we're talking about PR, public relations. While you don't think it's going to be an issue, it does become a big issue. So you want to make sure that that's covered under there. Business loss income is probably not that important for nonprofits based on you know the income they have coming in. But you want to make sure you've got the wire fraud, i.e. if there is a business email compromise, someone gets into your email and maybe it's stealing funds that way, or you're wiring funds to the wrong people, you know, wiring donations the wrong way. I don't know, maybe it was, uh, I email Dolph's nonprofit and say, I'm going to donate $50,000. I donate $50,000. You don't wait three days. Or sorry, it's in the very next day. It hasn't cleared. I email again and said, oh, I meant to do 5000 I need you to send back whatever the number is. All of a sudden, that's gone because I'm not a legitimate person. I'm a hacker. And if you're not covered by insurance, then it's not going to reimburse you. So those would probably be the four biggest things I would want as a nonprofit. You know, if you're talking about you do have business income coming in, then that would move into the top four. But assuming that's not that much, yeah, and system restoration too. And so we've talked a little bit about insurance. We've talked a little bit about post-breach. Let's go back before a breach. What are some of the, and I know you know this better than almost anyone else because hindsight's twenty twenty. And as the quarterback, you're able to look and go, wow, yeah, ball should have been thrown over there three weeks ago. So what are some of the policies and procedures that every nonprofit should have in place to protect their data? So I look at it as basically three core functions. You know, the first one is an umbrella policy. It's called the written information security policy. That's basically going to outline everything that you're going to do to protect your data. And let me say actually from the onset, to have these policies procedures, it's frustrating to do it. It's annoying. It's not practical. I get it. But you're changing your culture. If you change your culture and you spend the time to change your culture, the benefits are exponential. So you have the written information security policy. That's your umbrella. You know, that's basically going to say who's accountable, what you're doing to protect it, how you're protecting it, what laws you're complying with, how many times you're going to review it. And that's going to outline the different policies within that. The second part would be the incident response plan. That's basically, it's folded within the written information security policy. As I said before, people who have that plan, have accountability and test it for data breaches, save $1.2 million. And I know, so like when I'm talking about this, clients kind of look at me like I've got 15 heads. I just want you to think about it as writing down, who do I need to call if a data breach happens? How do I know it's a data breach? What do I have in place to kind of prevent it? Who is accountable? Who do I need to involve within the organization? So taking out all the fancy terms, incident response plan, it's almost like just even if you don't want to involve a lawyer or you don't involve tech at this point, just writing out, okay, if this happens, what will I do with X, Y, and Z? The next one is uh, vendor management, you know, talking about your external vendors, people that, you know, pay uh, credit card transactions, banks, 
CRMs, the blackboard incident recently, that's really like kind of shaken the core of nonprofits because you know, with blackboard, just a quick backdrop back in May, they were held hostage for ransomware. They paid it, but they didn't come out and tell everybody until July. They came out in July and they said, look, we paid it, but that's because we wanted to make, we knew that we're, that your information wasn't going to get leaked. Well, come to find out, it looks like information has been leaked. Uh, it looks like there's a class action lawsuit against them. So the question then is, how are we vetting our vendors, right? We've already talked about the legal responsibility about that, but pre-breach stuff, it's going in to figure out what our vendors are doing, right? So when you have a nonprofit, I understand Blackball, it's huge, right? They're very reputable, but it's the baseline knowledge of seeing what they're doing with their data. I'm sure they've got the terms and use of conditions that are going to explain exactly how they're going to protect your data. But maybe you're not using a blackboard. Maybe you have a smaller one. So then it's going in and doing fundamental due diligence, saying, all right, how many, if it, have you had prior data breaches? Do you have insurance? Do you have policies, protocols, procedures? Are you testing it? Are you training your employees? Who do you work with, right? Who are your friends or friends? So you can start asking these questions. And regardless of the answer, here's one big way to figure out if you're working with someone good or not. Do they get defensive, right? Anyone that gets defensive when you ask those kinds of questions, I would immediately stop working with. Because those who don't get defensive and are like, we do this, 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 and this, well, you know they've gone through it, they understand it, and they respect it. And then finally, employee training. You want to have the training in place. You want to have basically a playbook about how you're going to keep your employees trained, keep them aware to continue to change your culture. Because your, your employees are your gatekeepers, right? I would say 40 to 45% of data breaches start with internal negligence. So just somebody making a mistake, right? Not somebody who's malicious waiting to get your organization. Just somebody sitting there taking donations, you know, making calls, answering emails, all of a sudden clicks that wrong email and lets a hacker in. You know, so it's basically just changing your culture to help educate your employees and having that plan put out there. So I want to go back to the vendor piece. Then let's talk about employee education. Is it fair or even is it a best practice, perhaps, to ask your vendors for their certificate of insurance for cyber liability and maybe even ask to be named as an additional insured? Yes. Oh, hands down. I mean, every one of my clients, I always tell them, go back to their vendors, get their insurance, get added at that point, and then make sure we review their policy. Because if their policy is not including external parties that are impacted, that means you're not going to be under their umbrella. And then what happens if they go bankrupt, you know, at that point? So insurance, big time. Indemnification, i.e. who is liable in your contract. Notification. Different organizations are going to define a data breach differently. So you want to make sure they're defining it the same as you. So just imagine that you're working with my, I don't know, my cyber company. And I don't think it's a data breach. But it is a data breach for you all. I sit on it for a couple months. The clock's already started running for you in terms of when you have to notify people. So you want to make sure that's flushed out. Data disposal. Think about a company, organization that's got, I don't know, donor names, whatnot, for 10 years because there was nothing in your contract that says you have to, after we stop working with you, you know, one week later, you need to remove the information. Well, 10 years down the road, there's a data breach with that organization. They get your donor list. So insurance, notification, indemnification, and uh, data disposal, I think are the big ones. So if 
you're a nonprofit that already has a cyber liability policy. Can you ask your insurance company to help you with some of these things? Um, you can. I don't think a lot of them won't. There are some that are kind of more cutting edge that are getting out in front of this because they're starting to see, you know, 60% of data breaches start with a vendor. And when a vendor, when a data breach starts with a vendor, it increases the cost by about $370,000. Why? Because I think the late notification, you know, the amount of data people have and kind of just the lack of understanding of the responsibility. So I think the longer you take the notify and then the more people and then the government gets involved and it just keeps increasing at that point. So I think some insurers are getting kind of ahead of the curve right now and looking to get more involved with this, but primarily no, you know, you're probably going to have to get a lawyer to come in with you to do these kinds of deep dives with vendors. Vendors don't like it, but once again, I think just on their own, a nonprofit could ask just a couple of questions and see if they get defensive. I think that's my biggest, that's the easiest telltale sign for me when I'm talking to people. Unfortunately, insurers, you can ask your carrier. I don't know about any that will be proactive and go do the due diligence, but there are a couple that are making programs right now that I think are going to roll out in the next year. Are there any carriers that will come in and help you do like a cyber risk audit? Yes. So all the carriers, I feel like, offer this kind of free consultation. You know, they'll do a mock breach roundtable with you. You know, I'm on a couple where we'll do vendor due diligence. I'll sit down with you and I'll literally vendor inventory to figure out who you work with. We figure out where your pain points are. If there was a breach, who could cause those problems? We talk about what we just discussed, easy ways to due diligence, contractual provisions. So I think Zagora offers that right now with, uh, with my firm. Every carry offers the pre-breach, like mock breach exercises. Other things you should ask about, though, are policy review. You know, I think being able to have somebody who knows what they're looking at come in for free, especially from if it's under your policy, and to review your policies and help you develop them more is very much critical and crucial. I know a lot of the carriers have these, but most people don't utilize them. You know, I, I don't know. It's just, I, I get people look at it like, we don't need to do it. We have insurance. It's fine you know, they'll cover everything rather than the preventative aspect. So I know the carriers want people to use them, but it's a frustration trying to get people to use them. So should nonprofits be at all concerned that if they have their insurance carrier do a mock a mock audit or even review policies that the carrier may go, oh, wow, this nonprofit has more risk than we thought and we're going to increase their rate or cancel their policy if they don't make these changes? I mean, that would be a pretty sneaky thing to do. I would say about the carriers. I don't, I see what you're saying with that. I can't speak to every carrier. The ones that I work with, no, they would not do that. They look at it as to reduce risk for them and the client, right? Because when they come in, the whole purpose is we want you to have better policies. We want you to have better procedures, protocols. Now, look, this is not across the board. Some might do it. I could imagine, I could imagine some doing it, but I don't know of any that do it. Uh, but the whole purpose is they want their insureds to have the better program, better protocols, policies, because the more that they have awareness about how to deal with a breach, the lower the cost is going to be at the end for everybody. Got it. So if we can shift and just talk for a few minutes about employees, I know you mentioned that about 40% of breaches happen because an employee clicks on a link or in some way weakens their, their protocols and their systems. What are some important trainings and policies for staff? So... I look at it as almost um, dual track. There's the formal and the informal. It needs to start with the policy though, right? And you need to be incorporating HR. If you don't have HR, that's okay. 
but you definitely have some sort of employee manual. I, I mean, I know the smallest nonprofits, the largest, they have this sort of manual. So you need to start incorporating more specifically what you're going to do with your employees and how you're going to enforce it. Um, the whole point of having these policies, right, is to change the culture. But to do that, unfortunately, you have to have consequences. Consequences don't have to mean you're getting fired, but they have to mean, okay, I clicked on the wrong link. It then buzzed my IT people. I need to go have a conversation with employee X, say, all right, this is what happened. Let's not do this. To me, that's a consequence, right? Rather than we don't care. So in terms of the formal aspects, it's the almost annual training, paying for software, right? To test your employees, phishing exercises, what to be aware of with social engineering, i.e. somebody literally will do a mock Spencer and then email you and you'll think it's from me, ways to identify that, bringing in external cyber and legal to talk to your employees about these threats, to educate them about how to be more aware. Informally, I think are, is equally as important and very much cost effective. It's having a poster campaign, right? Well, I guess now with the majority of people working from home recently, it would be an email campaign within your office, or even when you're in the office, putting posters up saying cybersecurity awareness, you know, day. Are you clicking on X link? Have you looked at your links? <laughs> Carving out two minutes and say, hey guys, hey everyone, look, this is what we're talking about today, but we want to talk about some more cyber stuff, right? Have you been looking at these emails? Have you heard about this? It's discussing the nerdy stuff too, but it's also just about changing your culture. It's doing these phishing tests, right? It's so cheap to get software to do these phishing tests. It's so annoying, but it's so helpful because your employees are going to start changing their mentality. You know, it's about the conversation you're having with your employees. Because once again, it's all about changing your culture. The more you change your culture, the more repetition you have in this, the more likely an employee is not going to click on a link who then is going to let in a hacker to your system. Got it. And so it sounds like in changing the culture, it's really changing it around email and the websites that people are using and going to. Yes. And you know, one easy thing that none of us like doing anymore, we all hate the phone now, right? We all despise using the phone. We just do. We've become a hyper-click world. We just want to click it. We want to be done with it. So it's about picking up the phone. When you get that email saying, send me a thousand gift cards. Well, let me call John. John, did you really want this? And be like, wait, I didn't send that. You know, it's about calling to be like, I don't know who you are. Can I have your number so I can confirm your identity? And, you know, at that point, they'll hopefully they give you a number. It's taking that extra second to take that deep breath, right? Emails are very much a point of vulnerability, but it's really, hackers are very clever, right? They're very sophisticated. The reason why they do so well is because they have the time, you know, to stay ahead of us. But just taking a deep breath, they want you to move fast. Right, they're banking on you doing a hundred things at once, and making that one click within that nine. You know, a hundred things you click on one thing by accident, but you take a deep breath before you do it. That's going to help. And and as you said, I mean, I think to a great extent, the hackers are looking for the low hanging fruit. So if it's slightly difficult, they're more likely to just move on to another target. So a lot of it is also, I would imagine, just things like passwords, and you know, don't don't use similar passwords or even the same password for every single cloud based system you've got. Yeah. I mean, you want the password policy in terms of, and that's cost effective. You, that doesn't cost any money to basically tell your organization, you need to change your password once a month. And the password better not be password or better not be organization's name plus 2020. You know, you need to make it complex. If you want to spend a little money, get Keeper Vault, one of the password managers. I can't 
say enough about that because that makes life so much easier because then you only need to remember one password. That's your master password. Don't lose that though. But yeah, so doing that, it's basically going to make life a lot more secure than those who have no policy when it comes to say passwords. I mean, if you want to spend more money, talk about multi-factor authentication where it's like two things to authenticate before you can get in. You know, imagine when you log into your iTunes, your Apple from a different computer, they'll send you a text, similar things that costs a little bit more money. But once again, if you just get to the nitty gritty of the password policy, I think that's very important. I have to share with you, a few years ago, I was doing an interim chief executive engagement, and the organization had really bad password hygiene, really bad password hygiene. And so we implemented a password vault like LastPass or something like that. And one of the things that I love about it is it enables an audit on the individual level in terms of password security. And so kind of what we created as our policy was everybody's password security when we audited it had to be 95% or higher, which means like no repeated passwords, you know, no really simple passwords. So literally like, and so we would just share pe- with people that report and we'd say, well, you can go through and figure out what you've got to change, but you've got to get to 95% or higher. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the password managers make it so easy because, you know, with the keeper vault, at least the one I use, I just hit like a a little dice and they'll get a 16 character password, which is, it's going to take like, I don't know, I think a million years to break as long as they're just trying to do their algorithms and they'll save it. Exactly. Then you just know it's in there. Or you have the different algorithms that will show you the strength of the passwords, which is good because then I think we're all visual learners at times. So it's nice to see that kind of objective data as well. Well, Spencer, I want to make sure that I ask you the off the map question. And I understand that you had a very memorable hike when you were in high school. And I'm hoping you'll share the story with us. Yes. Yeah, so um, oh, this is one of my, the best stories in my life. One of them, most scary as well. So it was uh, in October of 2001. So about a month after 9-11, I was on a school hiking trip uh, up in the Catacomb Mountains. And that's near... Well, I'll get to where it is near in a minute, but, um, so we're on a hiking trip. I think it was 15 students, two teachers. Uh, admittedly, I was not the best hiker, probably not the best in shape. So I was more towards the back with the two teachers and another student. We're about an hour into the hike and we come across a fork fork in the road and there's another student standing there. Uh, the student says, well, I think, you know, Johnny or Chase or whatever went down the wrong path. So teacher X is like, okay, I'll go get him. You all wait here. So the three students, or two students and I, and the teacher Y are waiting. Teacher X goes off. About a minute later, we hear screaming, like literally screaming, like get on the ground, you know, expletives, expletives, I'm going to shoot you, expletives. And we're all looking around like, wait, what's going on? Teacher Y is like, all right, stay here. I'll go check on teacher X. Teacher Y leaves. 30 seconds later, comes back. He's sprinting. He's out of breath, sweating profusely, pale white. And he goes... Okay, teacher, teacher X is being held hostage by men with rifles. I think they're, I think they're terrorists. I need you all to go hide behind that large rock and I'm going to go check it out. Well, just a caveat. I don't know what teacher Y thought he was going to do, all right, against like four or five armed men, you know, who'd already pinned down one teacher. But that's beyond the point. I appreciate his heroics. And he said, you know, go hide behind this rock. Whatever you do, don't call your parents. So... Go hide behind the rock. The mountains don't have great cell service, especially in 2001. Takes me about five or seven minutes because, of course, I disregarded that order. And I said, I'm going to call my mom. 
five or seven minutes, I get a hold of her and I said, mom, look, don't freak out. We're being held hostage by terrorists. They have weapons. And then all of a sudden I looked up and I saw a gentleman walking towards us and camo with a gun. And I said, mom, I've got to go. A man is coming with a gun. I love you. And I just hung up. Um, luckily, it was a military police officer. We had stumbled too close to Camp David when um, Dick Cheney was actually there at that time. So everything was fine. The problem was I didn't call my mother back because I forgot to call her back. So in between probably a 15 minute span of me telling her I'm about to die and attacked by terrorists and the general location where we were, she had called the school, the local police, the state police uh, and the FBI and told them we were under attack by terrorists which then pretty much triggered a very much widespread local and national law enforcement uh, response in that area. Uh, my mom, all in the meanwhile, had gotten in her car and started driving about two hours to, I guess, hike the mountain and come find us. So that's kind of like that teacher why. They're like, I don't know what that teacher why was going to do. Like, what's your mom going to do? Oh, yeah. Well, my, oh, I'd be, if I was a terrorist, I'd be worried about my mom <laughs> if she was come up, coming up a mountain to get me. Um, you know, I got a hold of her and, you know, my mom being the best, actually picked up McDonald's for everybody, came up a mountain, dropped off McDonald's. So, yeah, it was in the, it was in the no, uh, local paper, but it was on our school paper that we were, you know, I guess uh, accosted by potential terrorists or assumed that we were terrorists, one of the two. I have to say, I do a lot of hiking and backpacking. I don't have nearly such a dramatic backpacking story. I just don't. Um, so now so now I've got to try to maybe go do some hiking around Camp David, see if I can have my own backpacking story. Yeah, maybe get camouflage, put like the war paint on and kind of just <laughs> kind of run up to the, like the line and run back, you know, whatever you can do to like match the story here. I, I will share with you, we took one of my best friends, her two kids, we took them on a backpack trip, just an overnight backpack trip. And their youngest child literally fell off a cliff. And he did it right in front of me. And all day long, I kept saying to him, and again, like I get it, you know, he's got, you know, he's got gear that's his size, but he's probably got 25 pounds on his back or 20 pounds on his back or whatever. And all day long, I kept saying, buckle your backpack. This will not be as difficult if you buckle your backpack. And so I saw it about to happen. So I kind of started to hover my hand over his backpack. He started to go off the cliff. I grab his backpack and then he starts to slip out of his backpack because he did not buckle his backpack. And I was like, kids, you got to hang on to your backpack. Yeah, I'm like, this is the point. It's not buckled. So if you don't hang on to your backpack, you're going to dive. I need you to hang on. And of course, as soon as we got to his parents' house, I told his mom the story. And they did not want me to tell his parents the story. But I was like, look, I know at some point you're going to tell them. And this needs to come from me and not from you guys. So Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Because, you know, come from him, he'd be like, oh, he was kind of just pushing me around and almost pushed me off the mountain. My backpack was strapped, though, I promise. Right, exactly. His mom would be calling me, did you almost kill my child? So I was like, no, this is coming from me. But that's about the best backpack story I have otherwise. That's still a good one, though. I like it. I like it. No guns involved, but I do like it. Exactly. No guns involved, but so, some sense of danger was involved. Spencer, thank you so much for joining us today. I am thrilled that you were able to come on. And listeners... I need to make sure, like I always do, that you know how you can reach out to Spencer. So, first of all, he's an attorney with Niles, Barden, and Wilmer. And you can visit him at NilesBarden.com and then look up Pollock, which is his last name, P-O-L-L-O-C-K. So, NilesBarden.com, look up Pollock. We will also link to his page at their firm site. 
And the reason you might want to do that is you can reach out to him to find out if you were prepared for a data breach as well as the consequences and whether or not you fully understand what those legal obligations might be if you do have a data breach. He has made the very generous offer to offer some free consulting, so a free session with anyone that calls and says, hey, I just need to talk about my nonprofit and how ready we are and what else we can do to prepare. So definitely worth your while to check out NilesBarton.com. Also, he's got a LinkedIn page, and we will link to his LinkedIn page. And then finally, he has one of the newest hottest podcast, Cyber Law Revolution. And we will link to that. And of course, you can get that in your streaming app of choice. Hey, Spencer, thank you so much for coming on today. Dolph, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you having me. So listeners, if you are busy looking through your insurance policy, trying to figure out what it covers and what it does not cover in case of cybercrime, that's an important thing for you to do. So you keep reviewing those policies and know that you can go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com to get all of the links and all of the ways to reach out to Spencer Pollock. And don't forget... Once you're done reviewing those policies and you've had a conversation with Spencer, if you're starting to think about that board retreat, think about us at Successful Nonprofits as well. Finally, if you enjoyed this conversation with Spencer, there are two episodes I suggest that you listen to. The first is episode 164, How to Love Your Next CRM with Maureen Walbyoff. And the second one that you really got to listen to is episode 144 with Peter Gross. And that one's entitled, Board the Tech Train While You Can. So make sure, listeners, that you check out both of those and that you rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, your streaming app of choice. That is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And of course, the lawyers make me say this. I'm not an accountant, nor I'm an attorney. And neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This podcast is really for informational purposes only. And this will not surprise you, should not be relied on for accounting, legal, or tax advice. If you find yourself in need of that, I would suggest that you get some recommendations for some good licensed professionals and have those conversations with them. 